The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Today, we are joined by Paul Hammond. Welcome, Paul. Hey, Max. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, for our audience that don't know Paul, Paul is very well known for having been involved in the creation of Selenium, the browser-driven uh, web framework. Maybe I maybe I botched that description just there, but uh, we'll come back to it in a sec because for today's episode, I think it would be really great to talk about what Paul has perhaps been most involved with recently is uh, documenting the best practices around uh, trunk-based development. Uh, so for our audience that aren't familiar with trunk-based development, Paul, can you can you perhaps give in a nutshell what trunk-based development is? Sure, it, it's a it's a branching model. It's primarily linked to continuous integration and continuous delivery. It's uh, controversial. Um, I do teach it to big corporates. I go into companies under my consulting vehicle, Paul Hammond DevOps, and I do that worldwide. And I'll help them get from bad, slow branching models to fast, smooth trunk-based developments and all the associated practices. Uh, if people are curious, check out trunkbaseddevelopment.com. It's a super well-documented website. Uh, it's open source if people want to contribute back to it or ask questions. So, yes, the the website, I do garner some pull requests. People fix my spelling mistakes, which is embarrassing, but it's all it's all good, <laughs> right? Now, um, mm -hmm. the controversy. You know, source control's uh, 30 years old as a technology, but we had some bad years. In fact, we had some bad decades. And uh, we had some sales engineers for various commercial tools sell big, slow branching models. Thinking Clearcase primarily, but others. And they would tell you you could live on long-lived feature branches. And that's the default today in the enterprise. Big corporates are stuck there. And maybe they didn't start there, but they've migrated to that for a number of reasons. Pressure around delivery, pressure around quality. And they're stuck in this long feature branch place. And they merge back after they go live. And uh, whilst it could be said that that's only a problem in corporates, it's also possible that startups are struggling with branching models. And it could be that they're focused on uh, reading about solving their branching model problems online, blog entries and the like, and they're stumbling across Gitflow. And then they're betting on that one, and it's sold as a high-throughput branching model, but the continuous integration community, the continuous delivery community, uh, the hardcore extreme programmers of the past would be happiest streaming a series of small commits into a single branch that we'll just euphemistically call trunk here um, and not deviating from that. And it's a challenge to get both those communities, both enterprises and startups, to accept that there's a way that they can work around a single trunk or a master um, to high efficiency. And they, and they quite often don't believe it. Dialing back a second and to further introduce who Paul is, Paul spent, I think, over a decade at the perhaps number one software consultancy in the world, ThoughtWorks. And so Paul's gotten a lot of uh, perspective on what the history of version control systems looks like. And perhaps a lot of our audience may only be familiar with Git and GitHub and the popularization of Git flow as uh, the dominant way to perhaps uh, make changes to software. But uh, as Paul's saying, there are alternatives. Uh, for example, Google uh, did not start with Git. They started with, uh, I think it's a proprietary version control system, Perforce, not, proprietary, not proprietary, open source? Uh, no, but they, they okay, don't use okay. it anymore. Uh, they have something they've engineered themselves in its image, but they maybe from 
1998 onwards, they'd installed Perforce and they ran that in a single branch model. They didn't have that as title as trunk within the source control thing. But the other thing they pioneered was mono repos. And whilst that's a Perforce's default mode of operation, it's not often that people would use it that way. But Google did. Single branch, thousands and thousands of thousands of committers in one branch, all following this, uh, you know, this claimed high throughput model. So one of the, the things I've read about in the trunk-based development website that you authored, um, and that, as I understand it, is done at Google uh, with the mono repo is when you have such a large code base with so many uh, teams working on so many projects in a single quote unquote repository, um, checking out a version, a shallow version of the whole code base isn't so tenable on a, on, you know, a new, a new employee starts the first day, they're handed a MacBook. It has, I don't know, a terabyte of, of, of hard drive space. Uh, there, there's a lot of variations to splitting up a mono repo. So it's workable by such a large company with tens of thousands of employees, I guess in, in Git, the best analogy that our audience might be familiar with is the concept of a sub module. Is that an accurate abstraction of, perhaps how a company like Git works with such a large single repository? Yeah, Google. Um, kind of. But uh, submodules is a trick, really. It's a, a reality that you really want to live in this world of atomic commits. So that would mean that you could make a change to, say, the HTML, the CSS, the JavaScripts, let's say the Java or the Go of the middle tier, but also some change some SQL, DDL, DML, and have something that goes in as a single commit that straddles all the tiers in your solution. The extreme programmers of the past would tell you that thin vertical slices was the way to go, and there's no reason to believe that that has ever changed, except maybe today that the web is so, complica so complicated that we spin off a dev team around front end, and we detach that from the back end, and that leads us to other problems you know, around integration. You know, The reality is that you want to do an atomic commit that straddles all of your front end and back end codes um, and you could might have carved up your front end into one module and your back end into another Git submodule, and you're not really in the perfect place of an atomic commit there. So the other mode of operation for Git, if you wanted to have this reality that was more Google-like, would be to have a larger repo, uh, try and do something and uh, try and make some modification to your workflow on a monthly basis or a yearly basis to not accumulate too much history so the clone doesn't get too big, but allow um people to check out the piece of the mono repo that's appropriate to them and i was very careful to say the word checkout there in a clone operation in git you're going to get all the history but in a checkout operation you needn't get all the directories so you can reduce what's in your working copy with git sparse checkout so just the directories uh, quite a sophisticated mask if you wanted so just the directories you wanted and then if your build still works in that regards, you can maybe have a fast build, including tests, that builds only the binary aspects that you actually need for your particular task now. And that's the reality inside Google, although they're not using Git. Um, you've subset the entirety of the directory structure, which is terabytes in size, 9 million source files when Rachel Potvin did a, um, I think it was both an ACM article and a speech at the scale conference she talked about nine million source files ahead revisions and 86 terabytes of source and that was over five years ago when she made that speech now it's the case that 
you want to subset that down or it's just impossible for you to work on this Mac that you described. Now, with sparse checkout, we can subset an arbitrary sized clone set down to something that's best for your operation. But almost nobody outside Google is actually focusing on that as a way of working. And maybe the reality is that it's still second class because you couldn't get past the clone of everything. Whilst the sparse checkout made your working copy small, the .git folder at the root of everything is still massive. You know, perhaps worrying, worryingly bigger than you had hard drive space for. <laughs> so that's why, say, Perforce and Piper and its image since uh, deliver the reality. But they don't give you the history on your, on your Mac. They keep the history on the server, same as Subversion, same as other source control systems of the past. And they give you an ability to subset the checkout all the way down to your working copy so that you can work fast after that. So if somebody were to start on day one at a Google uh, and join the drive team, which I guess no longer exists, <laughs> maybe how about the Gmail team? Uh, <laughs> they could they could uh, subset what they're cloning or sorry, checking out to their MacBook to be able to you know, perform any kind of uh, changes that they're tasked with making as part of yeah, their job. So uh, Google on day one would sit down with a Mac, you know, presumably tools are, still, are on it, and you'd run a script, uh, which, you know, when I was at Google as a ThoughtWorks consultant briefly, uh, it was called G-Checkout. So you ran a shell script, G-Checkout, you gave it a target, which would be, say, Gmail. But if you really wanted to, you could say maybe G-Checkout, Gmail plus AdSense plus AdWords, and you'd get an amalgam of all three. Um, and that would mm -hmm. fill your working copy with something that was everything that was needed to build Gmail, including third-party libraries, which Google would check in without version suffixes into a third-party directory. And then if you kicked off a build, uh, for them, that would have been Blaze back then. Uh, Bazel has been open source since, but I would imagine they're still using a proprietary version inside. Uh, Buck at Facebook was made by Zooglers, amongst others, and also my friend, Simon Stewart, X of Google, X of ThoughtWorks, and the creator of Selenium 2. Um, thank goodness he took the keys off me for that one, me and Jason Huggins. Um, <laughs> and uh, you could run a Blaze or Bazel or Buck build to do a directive graph computation of everything needed to compile and then test before it would say this was good or bad as a build. Different to our way of working with MS Build and Maven and Ants and things like that. So given our audience is bought into trunk-based development, and if you aren't, you should go check out Paul's website. There's additional best practices that I think we should talk about uh, that you similarly have a website for documenting and clarifying the concepts. But for our audience who aren't familiar with branch by abstraction and, and why people should be aware of it or why people should use it, uh, do you mind defining it and, and yeah, explain Yeah, this is, um, I was at Bank of America in Chicago and we had a lot of like complexity to achieve in a short amount of time, and I mean a few months. And uh, we needed to make some changes at the same time as re-engineering everything from multi-branch craziness towards this structured, we'll call it a monorepo style thing, and it was in Perforce back then. Um, but one of the complexities was we needed to do all this non-functional changes. We moved directories around and simplified and merged branches and did things that weren't business valuable we need to do those concurrently with business deliverables, which were towards implement X, implement Y, add this. And uh, we needed to devise a practice. Um, and because I had this love of trunk-based development and 
maybe it took years for me to encounter a company that wasn't easy to flip to trunk-based development and Bank of America was it, uh, we had to devise a plan that included a choreography through source control by introducing an abstraction to achieve a migration from one thing to another. And in this case, um, it was implements, uh, take out JMS and put in TIBCO concurrently with take out uh, binary serialization of Java objects to put in an XML serialization of Java objects. And we needed to do these things concurrently with all of the big surgeries we were doing to migrate from ClearCase to Perforce and multi-branch to Trunk. So it was probably silly because wow. at this age, you would try and do <laughs> one thing, measure it, see it was successful, lock it in, and then do the next thing. But we did all these in parallel because there was nobody, there was no adults uh, to tell us, to tell me not to do this. So branch abstraction was this technique to introduce an abstraction under the old, slowly write the second implementation of the thing with tests, flip everyone over when it was all good and ready, go live with that, take out the first implementation of the abstraction, the one that has been used for years, be fairly sure you're not going to roll back because that was always a thing and still is always a thing, and then take out the abstraction. So it's a choreography, and maybe in the end it's 10% more expensive than trying to do it in a perfect way in a separate branch and merge that back, but it's born from the belief that merging branches back is inherently difficult, especially if, let's say, one month or two months or three months has passed since you made that branch. In many cases, branches can't be merged back and you now have to write off the work that was in them, especially when you'd encompass pretty much every source file within the code base. And you had another 200 developers working, ignoring what you were doing in the technical thing by adding business value elsewhere. So if we did it in baby steps in a lot of little commits using this abstraction technique, it'd be good. And we pushed out, I pushed out that blog entry introducing branch by abstraction just before I went to Google as a consultant because I didn't know that Google wouldn't close us down for blogging, as some companies do, Apple and Oracle in particular. And it was the case that I thought I'd have to get this documented. Then Jez pulled it into the continuous delivery book, including the artwork from um, the Bank of America projects, somewhat uh, obfuscated. So we didn't, took out real people's names and real project names. And it that was the first time I realized that actually the people needed to read about this. And, you know, being in the CD book was pretty good um, for, for pushing the messaging around this. And, uh, and I've been following it ever since and m making that website. And there's, there's plenty of different ways of viewing the same story on that website. And readers, perhaps, should, or listeners should go off and have a look if they can. Um, but it's a, it's a practice now, Absolutely. I think, that is the convincing piece for life doing trunk-based development. Without that, you don't believe it's possible. A, a question, a, a question that mind. arose in my mind, and I'm hearing some reverb. Uh, <laughs> a question that arose in my mind was, as I was reading trunk-based development, uh, the, the website, I was wondering about with trunk-based development and uh, uh, very uh, shallow deviations from the trunk as you're working on features, when a, when a when a merge request gets merged back into trunk and it introduces flakiness to the build, like a flaky test, uh, it might not be discovered what causes the flake for maybe a little a little bit of time. And I'm curious, it, it doesn't get mentioned in the trunk-based development website yet, but I am curious about 
how how trunk based development copes with flakiness in the build and flakiness being introduced um, to the build. Yeah, it's a good question, Max. I think the answer is you don't have flakiness in the builds. So before you begin the piece of work, there is no flakiness. Um, Google had a set of engineers, test engineers, who would review the entire company's test base looking for flaky tests and then address them with teams. And if they weren't addressed or the correspondents didn't reply, uh, those test engineers could just delete tests. So keeping 100% green, I think, is your is your goal, like 100% test passing. Sometimes in the corporate landscape, people ask me what percentage of failure is acceptable before you release, and it's... Um, you know, their reality, and you have to be sympathetic, but the answer has to be given as zero. Zero percentage of red, sorry, zero percentage of green. 100 percentage of green, zero percentage of red <laughs> is your requirement all day, every day, every week, every year, regardless of proximity to release, which differentiates us from the, the other branching models we tried to get rid of. So as part of a, a process of trunk-based development, if flakiness is discovered to have made it into the trunk, what what's kind of the best prescribed solution for this discovery? Uh, undo that commit, roll it back without without okay, question. Got it. And in Google, there'll be a bot to do that for you. But in reality, let's say mm-hmm. you know some hardcore extreme programmers for the past would prefer to just commit push straight to master, straight to trunk. And you know, if your team's small enough or you've got some super experts, that's fine. But in Google, when they had, you know, I was there, maybe I can't remember, 16,000 developers in one trunk, and now it's 35,000, if not more. Um, You can't have people making a mistake in trunk. If somebody else can pull it or, you know, check out or clone from that and then waste their own time trying to do a modification on top of something that isn't inherently working, you're you're costing the company money. So Google marshal everything through a, a review system. Uh, Guido Van Rossen, the Python author, did a 20, 2006 um, pre-YouTube presentation online introducing Mondrian, their code review tool. And soon after that, we saw Garrett and Red, Ritveld, uh leap into being. But in parallel, the GitHub people were coming out of stealth and they were launching their own continuous review system, the GitHub pull request system. And, and later, they would publicize the GitHub flow model, which is pretty close to trunk-based development. And, uh, you know, the thing is there that if you have a review system, you've also got a place where continuous integration can kick in. Sorry, that's not true. Where the build infrastructure can kick in and validate a commit or a pull request or a patch set, whatever you want to call it, something in the review queue. And that can be verified as being good or bad. And if it's bad, it goes no further. It's kicked out of review and the, the original submitter has to rework it so that it now passes the automatic metrics, including the build. But if it passed there and it passed code review and it gets merged into trunk, uh, whether that was a patch set, whether that was a uh, transitive pull request branch, short-lived feature branches by the naming we've used in the trunk-based development site, if it gets merged into trunk and then it fails, um, you're encountering an incredibly unlikely scenario, which is basically some bad timing or quantum entanglement cause your test to fail when it actually had passed five minutes before and you had made no further modifications. So it still gets rolled, it still gets kicked out, taken out as a commit, rolled back, reverted. And it, it won't disappear in a force push movement. It'll actually just be negated in a follow-up commit. 
and now it's back in your queue it's, again as something that requires fixing and you get a second attempt to get it through and you know overcome that unlikely scenario of the entanglement with somebody else's commit born from bad timing but google would prevent something from arriving in the trunk or master by good machine usage the same infrastructure they will use for some continuous integration is reutilized for uh, this verification this pre-validation of the same um, pull request or short-lived feature branch or in their case patch set you know that same build that you should have run on your workstation will be run once during your code review cycle and then once more after it lands in the trunk or master and at any of those stages if it fails it's it's stopped or rolled back and you have to review it so dialing back a second first for pro probably a share of our audience they may they may not even be familiar with necessarily what flakiness means so just for a moment flakiness just refers to uh, running your software and observing it behaving differently over the course of multiple runs uh, and this this can cause extreme aggravation for software engineers who might be tasked with making it run in a predictable fashion. And um, this, this is, these, these can be really hard to reproduce problems that occur with the software. Uh, but yeah, like Paul's describing, uh, these, these ought to be <laughs> purged without yeah. prejudice. <laughs> it's true. Um, and it's hard, but I think, Max, you're hinting at something that's a reality for lots of enterprise developers. The bills, okay, depends on something that's, you know, a moving target. Let's say it's an environment, and that environment might be unstable. Um, so the reality is that as we think about perfect world build systems, we want to engineer a build that doesn't depend on an environment that could be flaky, that could be unstable, or that could be a moving target. Let's say your Selenium test looks for Fred Flintstone. And then somebody an hour before had deleted Fred Flintstone as a user in the QA system that you were targeting for your CI builds or your nightly builds. Nightly is not continuous. Um, the reality is that we shouldn't be depending on environments where humans are working or could work. We should reserve environments for CI and for the, say, the pre-integration before that, that no human goes into. We should maybe spin that up using infrastructure as code on a just-in-time basis, just ahead of the test execution. So that it always resets to a known starting position where Fred does exist and Wilmer exists. And you can, you know, whatever your application was, you can do some interaction between Fred and Wilmer using Selenium. So you should do things within your build to increase stability by isolating from humans. By isolating from other builds, you can't have one environment that two builds are concurrently running in. Devs on their workstations should be able to run everything we've just talked about whilst the network cable's unplugged and the Wi-Fi's off. So I'll call that, and I do in my, uh, my DevOps uh, consulting, I'll call that shared nothing builds. So both on your workstation and in all of the bot-driven continuous activities where the same build is verified, whilst you're busy, those should all be in shared nothing environments. Now you think as an enterprise developer, that could be very expensive because some very expensive pieces of software in those. And now your new problem is, how do we mock some of those down stack pieces? Um, and that's, there's another field of science that's relatively young, like six or seven years young, 
called service virtualization. And there's a whole bunch of tools vendors in this space, but there's also um, some open source technologies. Wiremark is one. Mountie Bank from Thought, my friends at ThoughtWorks. I've, I've got one in the wings that's less capable on one axis and more capable on another. Um, and uh, these are technologies you can put into your build that mean you don't need that really expensive rules engine to be purchased and installed just for this transitive build-centric environment. You can mock that out. Um, so that's that's where build engineering goes, increasing use of service virtualization, adherence to shared nothing strategies for each of the builds, and then we see flakiness disappear. We also see speed uptick. Let's say if I've engineered all of those pieces on my Mac in a build, you know, using containers or not, it doesn't matter, as long as it's scriptable and repeatable. If I've engineered all that on my MacBook Air, and I don't need the real Oracle server somewhere a thousand miles away, or a rules engine which is in a data center that's not always available, if I've mocked all of those within my system or installed junior pieces, let's say my build might work against, say, H2, hypersonic, instead of Oracle. Um, and that doesn't mean, say, I can go live like that. I have to do other testing cycles later, a little bit of shift right to balance out a lot of shift left. If I've engineered all those things, I'll notice the build is fast, and that would include Selenium. I'll see at peak for a well-written test structure, I'll see three or five tests in Selenium a second not clicks, tests. Um, so fast, in fact, that you, if you're watching the browser, if the browser's open, you won't be able to see what it's testing, but you'll know roughly which areas of the system it's testing because it'll be moving far faster than humans could, could interact with the screen. So shared, shared nothing and service virtualizations would be the takeaways for, for your listeners if they wanted to try and engineer this in-house for themselves. Another phrase I've heard to describe the shared nothing property of tests is the the word hermetic and a hermetic build in which your build occurs with like you describe uh, no network connectivity uh, no peripheral hardware like you're describing maybe gpus or something but uh, i i know i know this is something that gets in, enforced if you if you if you were to use uh, certain build tools uh, for example you, you were mentioning Google's uh, Bazel or Blaze. Um, one of the, one of the ways to help ensure a shared nothing build environment is to require as part of your build tool that every file required in the build environment be declared yeah. up front. But, it's, it, but in uh, this case, service virtualization yeah. concerns things that are remote by TCP/IP by HTTP. You know that that you just can't legislate for within your source repo. You know, where, where we're making a policy decision is we're saying uh, we will only test local host endpoints. And I might have spun up something on port 8080, say my Tomcat, but I might have also spun up two other processes within my Mac for other things that were previously remote but now are just local. I still want to go over HTTP. I still want to mimic all of the serialization, deserialization technologies that would be involved for that. Um, Hopefully, I have a HTTP interface and I'm not dealing in the world of Corba or RMI or worse, you know. Um, and, you know, this is a modern era, so maybe we're okay with that. But the, the idea is that it's not just an issue of what's in source control that's locally available. It's not just a, a worry about depending on a binary repository for acquiring of artifacts, which there's nothing inherently wrong with. It's just a strategy. 
the main objective of this is to make sure that once I've filled all my caches, I've run the build once, if I then yank the network cable, turn off Wi-Fi, and I run the same build again, obviously we're all command line lovers, so I'm pulling something back in batch, and I'm hitting enter on it again, it should run again faster this time because it's just encountering cached items, and it should run to the same outcome, 100% green. Maybe, uh, maybe that's how I want to work for the next hour after that. Stay offline. This it's not so much about everything being source controlled. It's about everything being repeatable and the least number of remote services uh, utilized. In the end, I am going to have to use some to fill caches, and I, I am going to depend on cache stuff, including DNS. Uh, but once the caches have been filled, I want the same outcomes if I run the build a second time. On, on this topic of testability and best practices around contributing to building software, uh, I know aside from your consulting practice, you've bootstrapped a, a startup engineering team before, uh, and you've you've turned to um, external contracting services as you've previously been a, a contractor in the past, um, what what are some of the the impediments to onboarding contractors to work on a piece of software when they may not be? I mean, if you look at the job market, the labor pool for software engineers, a, a huge portion of it, you know, has never written a test before. For example, um, when you go to a website like an Upwork, uh, is it is it feasible to find software engineers who, who uh, know yes. how to write tests? I think we're, we're muddling a few things here. Number one is that uh, CompSci graduates aren't being taught how to write unit tests or any other more advanced form of testing. Um, and if they're being taught source control, I think it's through peer groups rather than syllabus. So we see quorums of people arrive in the software industry that aren't so interested in tests. And we can see whole uh, regions of countries where you can see the same habits. Um, you know, the closer you are to Silicon Valley or New York or a Chicago scene or the London scene, the closer you are to maybe a love of unit testing and you've gained that through osmosis by meeting other developers in that area. But if you're in a younger country who's only just decided nationally to get into software development, there's a likelihood is that you're further behind the cue ball on the love of testing on testability. Anyway, so I, I'm, what is it, Sunday? I, last week, I was CTO of a start, stealthy startup, and next week, I'm CIO of the same startup, having backfilled myself for CTO. And it's a part-time role that allows me to do the DevOpsy stuff as well. But when we started, it was just me picking technologies, uh, the most risky one being to choose Flutter for um, a front-end, you know, Android and iOS from one code base, pseudo-declarative, which nobody lists as the strongest feature of Flutter, but it is. Um, it's really easy entry, and you can like read it and go, I think I can do this which was your reaction, by the way, in 1993 when you first saw HTML. And uh, it's nice. It's beautiful. Uh, and there is a Flutter driver for it, which has nothing to do with WebDriver, which is the other name of Selenium. Um, and we on Upwork, we paid for, at the beginning, rectangles to be delivered for us, one Upworker per rectangle being delivered. But we also paid for a bunch of contracts around exploring Flutter driver in a perfectionist way. So that's Paul, the Selenium co-creator, thinking, I know how to engineer functionally clicking test acceptance suites, um, and I want to see this again in Flutter. And honestly, I think we, we spent uh, a few hundred dollars 
trying to do fixed price contracts for various bits and pieces of Flutter in a Flutter driver configuration and didn't ever get to a place where you were really super happy with the with the build throughput and the decomposition of the Flutter pieces. So it, it remains a challenge for us. Uh, but the the big value we got from this exercise, I think, was learning how to use Upwork to bootstrap a startup when we hadn't made our first dev hire yet. It was just me as a coder. Um, in fact, you know, the first dev hire, it's like, hey, welcome on board. Let's do Flutter. Oh, by the way, go and get an Upwork account because we're going to be we're going to be putting rectangles out onto Upwork and then stitching them together when they come back. So if you're in, if you're interested, Mac, I could go just, into that. Yeah, I mean, just establishing some vocabulary here. What what do you mean by rectangle? Yeah, I mean literally, literally that a panel, a tab, a page, they're all rectangular. But if the page was busy, I could subset it down to let's say just the credit card form uh, within a much larger page. So these are rectangular pieces of the user interface. Yeah, so you know, I, lo- I love the model view controller design pattern and whatever other explanation people have for their design pattern i'm always thinking yeah you're just a drive form of mvc so i want to farm out the view the model and the controller for a piece um ideally i'd want to say with tests and then have that come back thank that up worker for that contribution um remove it from the let's say the repo that it was given back to us in Cut and paste it. <laughs> not a not a not a kosher technique for sure. uh, software development ever, but in this instance, it is because we're leaving one source control system and going into our own in-house monorepo. Cut and paste those rectangles into the larger solution, and then confirm that as we've stitched it into the solution, it all works there, and it and it, it's productive enough for us to think that we should keep doing it, even as we've gained more and more developers. You know, we became full stack. We want all the devs to be full stack. Uh, but Flutter on Upwork is a is a way of us inexpensively acquiring s- some functionality, maybe not the super secret stuff, and then stitching it into a larger solution and thanking the Upworker for their contribution with a five star review and a and a, a modest bonus. Is there is there a constraint within using contractors off Upwork that prevents you guys from allowing uh, Upwork? Uh, contractor to be a contributor or collaborator on your mono repo is there a reason they have to use a separate um, uh, version they don't control? have to we could we could give everyone the mono repo and just trust them not to keep a copy after we say bye-bye to them but we're we're typically going with an upworker for one or two or three contracts you know in, in some cases we've we've gone many months with the same freelancer uh, but we have more than one in operation at the same time um, and we do have some things that are going on within the startup. And the reason for us being stealth is that we have some things we, that nobody else is doing for the, in the business model. And that our code is so clean that it would be easy to see what that proprietary piece of um, you know, behavior is. And then let's say we're not ready for that country yet where we acquired the freelancer, um, but they sure as hell are. So they go and compete with us soon after ending the contracts. And Whilst they may not use our source base, they might start again with their own. We probably didn't want to train them up in what we're doing. We're probably happier that it was only our employees uh, that were uh, that were going with this. You know, and we and we we have a recruitment so, schedule that's focusing on one city in the initial country, but we don't find the flutter experience in that country, which is why we're using Upwork at all. But we have an office. And it's uh, maybe got seats for eighteen, and we've got six people in a in an office of seat, uh, 
with seats for 18 with an agenda to keep hiring until we're full complement. So final question, it's 2019. What version control system should um, one use? I realize, I realize there's a, a million caveats. It's, it's but, uh, I mean, I, I, I like, I like a lot of source control systems. I still like Subversion for multiple reasons. Subversion has a direct access capability, can deal with terabytes of files of history, can can deal with gigabyte files of individual size of gigabyte. You know, Git can't do this. Even with LFS, it's not, it's not right. Uh, but I'd still say Git. You know, Git is a, a beautiful technology. The dev team hasn't rested where it is. It's moving fast. I have no influence over the dev team whatsoever. I have no idea if they've ever read anything I've ever written. But if they were, I'd ask them to deliver the Google-sized history. I'd ask them to deliver sparse clone, as what they've already delivered sparse checkout. And I'd ask them to deliver permissions down to the directory level. So at the moment, if you can clone, you get everything. You might not be able to push to it. Clearly, you're not a committer on the projects. You've just cloned from GitHub. But I would want, like Perforce has, like Subversion has, um, I'd want to be able to see read and write directory uh, permissions on directories. So I might be able to make some directories hidden. I might be able to make some directories read only. And these are powerful enterprise features. And there's no reason at all they couldn't be added to Git. It's just that team's busy and they're setting their own agenda. You know, your Subversion's not out of the game either. Subversion has some commercial tools vendors that are making enterprise versions of Subversion with all of the web interface and the flow around commits and issues and stuff like that. And they, the two that spring to mind are Assembler and Roadcode. Both of them are uh, contributing back to Subversion's own development, as well as adding their own enterprise features for the type of company that might want to rest on Subversion rather than Git. So to wrap, I want to replug uh, trunkbaseddevelopment.com, uh, branchbyabstraction.com, and obviously, DevOps. Paul's consulting practice. We'll, we'll include links in the show notes. Thank you very much for uh, having Thanks me, for Max. coming on, Paul. It's been a pleasure. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.